Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Thursday. Glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. Yesterday, Jim, we had no good martinis. They were all crazy. So to make up for it, we've got two good martinis today. We've got good, good, and crazy. And uh, Jim, let's begin with the good. This made the rounds a lot on conservative social media on Wednesday, and rightly so. We've talked a lot about Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, even before the coronavirus uh, crisis hit. We talked about what an amazing job he's doing as governor of Florida. His approval ratings had been through the roof. They've taken a hit a little bit with his handling of the crisis, but not because the results have been bad. It's because he's been criticized heavily in the media and by some Democrats for not being as aggressive in locking down and, and shutting down. And uh, people were worried, you know, all the senior citizens in Florida is not taking this seriously. This is going to be a catastrophe. It's going to be the, the next New York. Well, didn't turn out that way because DeSantis did things smarter. We talked about it recently where he was more targeted in his uh, response, making sure that folks in assisted living and nursing homes were, were well protected, but uh, not so much a lockdown of the entire state. Well, yesterday, uh, he was with Mike Pence in Florida, and he was asked about uh, more recent reports about, is the data from your state really accurate? Because we've heard from some disgruntled people that, uh, that you're not actually tallying things up correctly. And well, the guy's probably not too happy he asked that question, because here's what Governor DeSantis said. Our data is transparent. In fact, Dr. Burks has talked multiple times about how Florida has the absolute best data. So any insinuation otherwise, is just typical partisan narrative trying to be spun. And part of the reason is that because you got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was gonna be just like New York. Wait two weeks, Florida's gonna be next. Just like Italy, wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that, and it hasn't happened. Not only do we have a lower death rate, well, we have way lower deaths generally, we have a lower death rate than the Acela Corridor, DC, everyone up there. We have a lower death rate than the Midwest, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio. But even in our region, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida has the lower death rate. And I was the number one landing spot from tens of thousands of people leaving the number one hot zone in the world to come to my state. So we've succeeded, and I think that people just don't want to recognize it because it challenges their narrative, it challenges their assumption, so they got to try to find a boogeyman. Maybe it's that there are black helicopters circling the Department of Health. If you believe that, um, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. So, uh, Jim, this is the kind of response you love to see. It's factual. Uh, it gets to the heart of the issue because the media is desperately trying to paint DeSantis as reckless. And they, I think they see that he has potentially a bright political future. So any chance to ding him, they're going to probably take. And, uh, but the fact that he uh, did it eloquently, did it passionately, and had his facts right, uh, good job, Governor DeSantis. Yeah, and I would just note that for people who say, ah, you know, direct speaking is, we don't need that, those fancy word talking. Um, Look, eloquence counts in this business. Eloquence counts in communication. It is one of the things that can make people conclude your argument is persuasive and effective. Florida actually just surpassed New York as the most po- on, on the switch states of the most population, but they're you know they're, they're obviously very different, different climates. Uh, they both have major cities. Uh, ironically, a decent number of uh, residents have if people have two houses. They're very often winter in, in Florida and such. 
you could look at a couple of different reasons and say, look, here's why New York is in worse shape than Florida is. Population density is probably a very big factor. Uh, you're just going to have more skyscrapers, more tall, high-rise apartment buildings in New York, particularly New York City and its environment, than you are in Florida. Um, Florida's built on a swamp, <laughs> or at least the southern part of the state is. Uh, humidity is going to be a factor. Temperature is going to be a factor. More wide open spaces, more access to beaches, you know, all that kind of stuff could be playing a, uh, a factor in why Florida has been hit less bad than people expected and New York has been hit very, very bad. I think worse than most people expected. But it just says something, Greg, about the mentality of the media. And I think the, the epistemic closure, as they used to say, which is a fancy way of saying, having just talked about the importance of eloquence, I'm going to explain what fancy words mean. Um, that you know, This idea of being closed-minded, being so certain that you understand the world and everything that's going on into it, that you are not interested in contrary information, you're not interested in contrary arguments, contrary data. And so on the left and in a bunch of America's newsrooms, they, they almost have created a beat of stories, which are New York is full of smart Democrats and Florida is full of dumb Republicans. So Florida must be doing worse. So why isn't it showing up in the data? And you hear people insisting, oh, just wait. wait. But you see similar comparisons of Michigan and Georgia and things like that. For a whole bunch of people, the measuring stick of whether a state is doing well has to involve you know, what party is the governor in. Um, and when the data does not uh, match up with their expectations, they get told, you know, well, we just have to wait. Just wait and see. Just wait and see, you know, at some point. Um, I, yesterday on Twitter, I had done the... Uh, the newscaster from The Simpsons and kind of this, you know, the, the, the mentality that exhibited here is, you know, states run by governors I don't like have a lower death toll in number of cases than states with governors I do like, which raises an important question. How are the bad governors covering up thousands upon thousands of deaths? Um, that's an exaggeration, but that seems to be the subtext of a whole bunch of these arguments here. And I think it's, you know, would, I'm not saying you have to say every Republican governor is doing a terrific job. I think, you know, DeSantis isn't perfect. Uh, uh, Brian Kemp isn't perfect. There's not that there's nothing they've done that's just, you know, is worthy of criticism on any level. But I do think you have to recognize that maybe Cuomo and Murphy in New Jersey and Newsom in California and Whitmer in Michigan and Wolf in Pennsylvania, maybe they've made worse decisions, particularly in the area of nursing homes. And that maybe that deserves a little more scrutiny. And then maybe instead of constantly watching the beaches and saying, look, they're going to they're gonna drop like flies any day now, any day now, we should kind of look at what decisions have been made and which ones have resulted in the most deaths and stop, you know, uh, uh, frantically insisting that if the data doesn't match our pre-existing uh, uh, beliefs based on partisan affiliations, that somehow it must be wrong and somehow there must be some sort of massive cover-up of deaths. Uh, when in fact, there's a massive number of deaths happening right before our eyes up in New York, New Jersey, and places like that. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. And specifically in this context, because uh, we just talked recently about the whole nursing home fiasco in New York, and I think it happened in New Jersey as well, where uh, coronavirus patients, after they were discharged from the hospital, while still battling the disease but getting better, were sent back to the nursing homes and uh, seems to have infected a lot of people. And of course, vulnerable population, uh, many died. And so, uh, Jim, I don't know what you think about this ongoing carnival show that's happening on CNN, where Andrew Cuomo gets interviewed by his brother, Chris Cuomo, and he still has not asked his brother about this in any 
way, not even a, a one question thing and then moving on to something else. But last night I saw he had a, a lot of time to, uh, to break out comic size swabs to make fun of the size of his brother's nose. So, I mean, I know it's an opinion show. Chris Cuomo's not really hard news, but I mean, uh, how low can we go here? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, you see that and it really looks like something that belongs out of a, you know, Saturday Night Live sketch or, or something like that. Um, I found the the goofing around between the brothers kind of entertaining, particularly the very beginning of this uh, pandemic and quarantine. Well, now we're in week 10. It's not that cute anymore. And it's pretty clear that Andrew Cuomo is primarily, this is, this is where Andrew Cuomo does his national media availability. He's not doing Fox News. I don't think he's really doing much on MSNBC either. He's this... The, the wacky Cuomo Brothers comedy hour has become the preeminent way that he communicates with the people outside. He does his press conferences and he gets questions from the New York press there. And they have asked about the nursing homes, but by and large, um, you know, he's, you know, he, he's decided that this is the media outreach he needs to do and that this is sufficient credibility. And I didn't mind this at the beginning. Now I think if you're CNN, you should start being mortified by this. I think the moment he took out that giant wacky prop of the, the giant, uh, uh, swab and joke that at some point this is when zucker or somebody at cnn should have said okay all right that's this has been fun there are now some serious questions to be asked uh you know chris you're off uh let's bring in you know jake tapper or uh some other you know somebody else who we feel is going to ask them some tough questions and let's throw some hard balls at andrew cuomo because he deserves them and our job is not to be, you know, publicists for this guy just because he's related to one of our anchors. We, you know, our job is to hold everybody accountable. And many people conclude that CNN isn't interested in holding everybody accountable. And, uh, you know, that's, the, the, you know, there, there was a time when people had much more faith in CNN than they do now. And unfortunately, they seem to be very happy with the way they are instead of, you know, for a while they, they like to think of themselves as being somewhere between Fox News and MSNBC. And I think there are a lot of people, particularly on the right, who would say, actually, they're either indistinguishable from MSNBC, or maybe they're even worse than MSNBC these days, because at least MSNBC is a little more straightforward about who they are, what they stand for, and what they really want to do. If you're happy being in third place in a three-horse race, that's probably not uh, saying the greatest stuff about you. Uh, so, Jim, Andrew Cuomo, uh, just to finish this off, uh, you know, when Republicans and, and others, conservatives mainly, I think, have said, you know, we've got to reopen. The economy's tanking. Uh, and not even saying that, uh, you know, we got to, got to risk some lives. Just saying we need to reopen. Oh, you want people to die. Andrew Cuomo goes out there in response to the uh, nursing home questions at the press conferences and says, eh, people are old. They're going to die. What are you going to do? Mm. Double standard a little bit there? Oh, you know, ludicrous <laughs> double standard. The, the other recent example that I, I was, I feel like really got underplayed was uh, Kevin Williamson did a very good column about this where he said, he observed that you know, Cuomo had said, I'm not going to choose between, you know, protecting people's lives and the economy. And Kevin Williamson said, yes, you are. Everybody is, right? We, you know, and this, this idea of, I'm not going to choose between security and freedom. Well, actually, every time we make a choice, we end up making some, you know, weighing those two competing good interests. We want freedom. We also want security. We want our economy to recover and grow. We want also do not want people to die because of this virus. Those are two important priorities, and we have to weigh how much we want to do one against the other, and there is no magic solution that gives us both. There is no wonderful magic wand option that allows us to reopen the economy and not have any uh, potential higher risk. And also, I think it's, you know, despite some people's insistence otherwise, uh, there is not an option to keep this economy locked down. Like, like maybe medically, the, very, the best possible option 
would be, I said, we're at week 10. Keep all Americans stuck in their homes for another two months. That, that might work great, but you know, by that point, our economy will have collapsed and we'll probably be at you know, third world uh, country status. Like it, you, you, you know, at some point, what is medically best does not function with all of the other needs that human beings have. And the folks who are arguing for reopen, uh, I think with each passing week, the argument has gotten stronger, not just because the economic numbers get worse, because we are starting to bend the curve. And the whole argument of this was, the beginning was, we got to bend the curve. We got to stop the hospitals from be, being overwhelmed. Well, we kind of stopped the hospitals from being overwhelmed after a month, right? But you're fairly certain in on this. And now all of a sudden it's like, no, no, we can't reopen until we know there's no way we're going to, you know, uh, have a greater risk. Look, that doesn't exist. We have to learn how to live with risk. And that's going to be challenging. And it's easier if you tell people up front, this is, you know, these are the tough choices we have to facing us. This is what we know. This is what we think we know. And this is what we don't know. But nobody wants to hear that. And instead, we want to hear the magic wand solution of Cuomo saying that he's not going to choose between those two things, even though every selection to, you know, to not choose is in, of, in and of itself a choice. It's just got to be maddening, especially for people who have lost their jobs or, uh, you know, lost their businesses or their businesses on the brink of having to close forever. And, and you know, the whole argument was be a good citizen. We got we got to do this to save lives. And then uh, to hear two months later, well, people are going to die anyway. Uh, is, is not exactly yeah. what you want to hear. Maybe the numbers would have been different, but uh, uh, that's got to be infuriating. It's infuriating when it even hasn't uh, affected you that directly. Yeah, I, I think there's something of an, a, a snowballing effect where the more a politician gets away with some sort of uh, ludicrous, you know, they, they're unpo- they're, they don't face consequences for a bad decision. They don't face criticism for a bad decision. Uh, you know, the country oohs and ahs about goofing around with his brother in prime time. You know, the, I suspect Andrew Cuomo's feeling really good about himself these days. And I suspect, I expect you'll see a little more, we'll see more shameless behavior rather than less. All right, let's talk about our second good martini now, Jim. And this is a little bit closer to home. And it's not often that you and I talk about local elections, not even state uh, legislative elections. We're talking about local elections, but uh, your good buddy, Cam Edwards, uh, editor-in-chief over at BearingArms.com, strong uh, Second Amendment uh, journalist, talk show host, and so forth, is looking at election results in two different areas of Virginia this week. Uh, The Stanton City Council, which is uh, out west along I-81, and then the uh, nearby Waynesboro uh, City Council. Both of these had been pretty staunch Democratic areas, even though they're not exactly near population centers. Uh, Stanton had certainly gone towards uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Looks like Waynesboro did as well. But the control of these councils is now flipped to Republicans. And as far as anyone can tell, uh, the only reason for this is much more active political involvement on the part of Virginians who want to protect their Second Amendment rights. And after seeing what uh, Ralph Northam and the Democratic legislature in Richmond did this year, it's pretty clear that uh, there are people who may not vote all the time, but when you get in their face, they're going to show up. Not sure whether that'll make a huge difference statewide. Uh, it might make a difference in a couple of congressional districts in Virginia later this year. So we'll wait and see. But uh, uh, the complacent have been aroused in some places, it looks like. Yeah. And look, you know, we should not you know, overstate the importance of this, but it is intriguing. It's the fact that it's happening in more than one community, I think, is a uh, the sort of thing that maybe should make you raise an eyebrow like Spock in the old Star Trek series. The, the thing that comes to mind here is that for a very long time, the argument of the gun control movement is that public opinion's on our side. And they would point to poll results that showed people generally supporting gun control. Now, besides the argument that the, you know, the wording of the question could very much influence the uh, types of responses people give, 
what came, what you know, kept coming true in election after election was that even if they're broad, the support for gun control, even if it was broad, was about an inch deep. It generally was something that people supported amongst other issues. It was not the primary motivator for them when it came to their decision of who do they want to vote for, a Republican candidate or a Democratic candidate. The, it, it, ironically, it's the same argument you see um, you know, school choice proponents say, why are Republicans doing so badly amongst African-Americans? African-Americans believe in school choice. Yes, they do, but it's not often the issue that they will decide whether to vote for a Republican or a Democrat on. Um, maybe, in fact, if, ironically, we we're talking about DeSantis, and maybe it makes enough of a difference on the margins to influence some elections. But, uh, you know, just the fact, the reason that somebody agrees with you on one issue doesn't mean they're going to necessarily vote for you. Um, meanwhile, the support for the Second Amendment and support for gun rights amongst gun owners is deep. You know, it, it is off the charts. And it is the sort of thing that they will make their decision on. And they will consider what the NRA grade for a candidate is. And particularly the lower level it is, uh, the bigger a deal it is. Now, for a long time, Democrats believed that the, t the tide was changing. Uh, mass shootings had made people much more supportive of gun control. Uh, they looked at gun owners as a bunch of, you know, dangerous, paranoid, crazy nuts and all that kind of stuff. And you ended up in a situation where they were a big part of the 2018 midterms. Really, you could argue a big part of the last three election cycle, last three election years in Virginia stemmed from their belief, hey, the suburban soccer moms are on our side now when it comes to gun control. Enter the coronavirus. Life in America is different now. Uh, thankfully, we did not see a huge outbreak of cases back when Minnesota had its primary. But, you know, people are understandably wary about going out to polling places. Now, you already have low turnout in all, you know, non-November elections, non-big primary elections. You already have low turnout on local elections. So now in this very low, already low turnout situation, throw in a virus that makes people less eager to leave the house at all, and you're going to have really low turnout. And who shows up for the really low turnout environment? Those who are most motivated, i.e., gun owners. So if you're a Virginia Democrat who thought that gun control was going to be, you know, things were hunky-dory now and you were going to be able to coast on this issue for a long time, eh, maybe not. Maybe in November you'll be okay. Turnout will be high enough. It's a presidential year. Next year's governor's race, eh, who knows? Next year's the midterms of 2022, who knows? Hopefully by then we're well past the uh, coronavirus pandemic and, and people are comfortable leaving the house or maybe there's a lot more vote by mail or things like that. But you know what? If you're, you know, once again, you're in a situation where there's a highly motivated minority of people and a broader majority of people or, or you know, plurality of people, but who simply don't have that, you know, simply aren't all that passionate about it in a, in a off year election, in a special election, lo and behold, you know, the, the more motivated side is going to win. So I think if you're a gun control supporter, I think these are two results, even though they're very local, probably should make you a little bit nervous about how, how strong you stand uh, compared to just a couple of months ago. You mentioned the uh, possibility of this being a motivating factor in upcoming races. Uh, the first, well, we got the presidential race this year. There's a Senate race this year in Virginia and a governor's race uh, next year. The first thing Republicans will need in Virginia is a candidate uh, to run for Senate or governor. I mean, no offense to the Republicans running for Senate this year. I hadn't heard of any of them before they got in the race, and I'm not sure that there's any expectation of a competitive race, and I don't see anybody uh, of great stature so far, anyway, uh, entering the governor's race next year. So I don't know if Republicans have already decided that this is a hill too far to climb, that Virginia's too far blue, but we'll see how things turn out. After all, the two uh, leading... <laughs> 
Democratic governor candidates for next year are the guy who's accused of uh, assault by two different women, the lieutenant governor and the uh, attorney general, uh, who also admitted blackface. So, uh, well, hold on, hold on, <laughs> Greg. There is still a possibility that the Democrats could sh could see the return of the single most ethical and admired and respected and scandal-free figure to run this state in, in at least 12, four, maybe 16 years, Terry McAuliffe. I'm not, by the way, there is, you know, by the way, so yes. Virginia does not allow governors to serve consecutive terms, but there's nothing that says you can't go back after four years and run again. And there's been a lot of talk that Terry McAuliffe might do that. And as much as, you know, you and I have some big disagreements with his policies, he did not take Rolexes and lots of other fancy gifts from a donor uh, and not report them the way Bob McDonald did. And he's not Ralph Northam. And that's like two fairly considerable arguments in his favor. Oh, also, he's also not Justin Fairfax and he's also not um, the attorney general. Compared to those four, Terry McAuliffe is, you know, he's super duper terrific. All right. Well, let's move on to our crazy martini now. And of course, uh, we talked just yesterday about Joe Biden's big choice coming up, and that is uh, for a running mate. And one of the names that's constantly out there is California Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, it's kind of an odd idea that he would pick her, given their dust up over her essentially calling Biden a racist over busing back in the 1970s. But, you know, politics, you, you do what you need to do to win, I guess. And so she's allegedly on the short list. But now Kamala Harris once again showing where uh, she is uh, in terms of freedom and, and radical ideas here. This is from the Free Beacon, Josh Christensen with the story. Senator Kamala Harris introduced a bill last week that would malign people as racist for using the term Chinese virus, connecting it to hate crimes. Senate Resolution 580 condemns, quote, all forms of anti-Asian sentiment as related to COVID-19, citing Chinese virus, Wuhan virus, and Kung flu as inaccurate rhetoric perpetuating anti-Asian stigma. The bill calls on public officials to denounce such rhetoric in any form. It also calls on law enforcement officials to investigate, document, and prosecute the perpetrators of hate crimes against Asian Americans. The resolution is co-sponsored by a host of Democratic senators, including Maisie Hirono of Hawaii and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, but no Republicans, shockingly, Jim. So uh, obviously nobody should give Asian Americans a hard time for the uh, ridiculous conduct of the Chinese government, but the idea that you should somehow be uh, reprimanded legally for using the term Chinese virus, Wuhan virus, or even Kung flu, uh, you talk about, uh, I don't know if you want to call her a Karen too, but man, uh, clamping down on free speech. Wait, uh, that's, that's an encouraging way to get yourself on the ticket. Besides the usual reasons of we want this pandemic to be over. I really feel like there are certain people whose mental ability to process it has reached its limit and they're bored with it and they want to move on to something else. And there's nothing that our political class loves to get, you know, dive in, you know, uh, to the deep end good old fashioned culture war stuff, right? Hi there, I am a Democrat and you Republican. If you're using words that I don't like, you are racist. Um, and you see this on a, on a whole variety of fronts. I read about this today in the morning jolt. I mean, look, first of all, I, I don't know, but great. When's the last time you heard somebody calling it the China flu, the Wuhan flu, or the Kung flu? Well, you know, I haven't heard it in part because like it's worldwide now. You know, Greg, when I'm writing, I will very often use the scientific gobbledygooky term SARS-CoV-2. Now, I know that sounds like a character from Star Wars. 
But ultimately, that is what the scientific name for it is. And the reason, you know, occasionally I'll use the term coronavirus, but as you, you know, many listeners to this, bright listeners of this podcast know, there are many different types of coronaviruses. So I realize the common colloquial term is to call it the coronavirus, as in, oh, did you hear so-and-so, you know, tested positive for the coronavirus? And everybody generally knows what you're talking about. But if you want to be more precise, you can do the SARS-CoV-2. By the way, COVID-19, you're probably, COVID-19 is the disease. The virus itself is this SARS-CoV-2. I really don't run around lecturing other people what they should you know, call it. Everybody pretty much knows what you're talking about. We're getting to the point where you can call it the virus and everybody knows what you're talking about. I think of the, uh, the Asian American CBS News White House correspondent. Look, nobody should treat this woman badly. No one should you know, uh, attack her or mock her for her ethnicity. It's a horrible thing to do. But I remember she said that somebody had called, a White House official had called it the Kung flu in some sort of conversation with her. And she certainly suggested this was some sort of, uh, it was directed at her uh, as some sort of anti-Asian animosity. I don't know why that official used that term. I don't know whether it was just, you know, their idea of making a joke or whether they really had it out for this woman and they were going to, they were going to stick it to her. Well, um, but I also don't understand why she didn't name which official. And some people were doubtful that it had happened. Um, I, if, you, if somebody does make an ethnic slur against you, how obligated are you to protect their identity? Um, I kind of, you know, oh, maybe it was off the record briefing or something, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't think, you know, if somebody uh, called me some terrible name and, and said, well, yes, but that's off the record. Oh, I don't know, pal. <laughs> you know, I don't know if uh, somebody uh, doing something like that, well, you know, I think, I think at some point if you're doing that, maybe, maybe you don't get those guarantees of off the record. Um, but she never named that person. And quite a few folks have thought about, wait a minute, this, is this was upsetting enough to you to complain about, but apparently not upsetting enough for you to name the person so this person could be confronted over what they allegedly said. Hey, look, you know, there was a new Washington Post had a story about uh, uh, Asian American doctors and nurses who are receiving all kinds of horrible comments when people, and they're treating coronavirus patients. And people are saying, you did this or, you know, and they, look, nobody should do that. That's, that's, you know, I think that goes, I think it goes without saying. And if it doesn't go without saying, well, then by golly, don't do this. You're a horrible human being if you do this. But the idea that we need congressional resolutions, I mean, could there be anything that's more transparently virtue signaling and showing and, you know, and attempting to get right back to we are the good people, they are the bad people uh, arguments. Actually, ironically, as we were having this conversation, Greg, Senator Tom Cotton says, it's understandable why the murderous Chinese Communist Party doesn't want the Wuhan virus to be linked to China. But it's mind-boggling that Senate Democrats are participating in China's propaganda. Again, I just kind of would ask, is, how many people on earth don't know that, that this virus came from Wuhan? Is it pretty clear now? And the other thing is also Wuhan virus is accurate. China virus, that's accurate. Kung flu, okay, it's a, you know, ham-handed pun, fine. You know, I, the idea that this needs some sort of official Senate denunciation demonstrates, like, do we, I guess we fixed the pandemic, huh, Greg? Economy's <laughs> back to normal, kids are back in school, everything's hunky-dory, they've got nothing else to worry about up there on Capitol Hill? Okay, great, great, good to hear it. Oh my gosh, it's almost like we've entered a parallel universe. Oh wait, we have, sort of. <laughs> uh, now NASA's contending that some research it was doing on Antarctica has, has detected evidence of a parallel universe where the rules of physics are the opposite of our own. I'm sure there's some sci-fi directors thinking, man, why didn't I think of that first? But uh, who knows if this is actually the case, but uh, I think we're at the point in 2020 where people are like, yeah, makes sense, sure. So here's the, th you know, on the one hand, I suppose, you know, you're thinking, oh my God, pandemic, murder hornets, 
what does 2020 have coming up next? Well, here we go. Uh, they, they, this is a pretty good twist. By the way, apparently there are other scientists who say, no, you're not really uh, interpreting that, uh, that totally correctly. <laughs> it is worth noting that, you know, I, I kind of feel like uh, this is a, a good example of how we blur the line between pop culture and uh, reality, Greg. Doesn't it feel like alternate universes are kind of done? I mean, you know, going back to the evil mirror universe over on Star Trek, um, I think, you know, one of my favorites of, of recent ones was uh, Counterpart uh, with J.K. Simmons, which, oh, by the way, has to deal with a very big part of the plot deals with a pandemic. So you probably want to keep that in mind. Um, but you can go down the list of, of how many different uh, movies and TV shows have dealt with, you know, this is a different universe. Things turn differently. And alternate history, you know, and um, I think, you know, The Flash, Futurama, Lost. I'm trying to think what other shows have dealt with different universes and, and you know, we're kind of done with it. I, I th- sorry, scientists, we, we've already been here. We've already done that. I kind of feel like those stories are played out. Now, somebody made the very interesting <laughs> idea, though. I mean, if it really did work that way and you could jump to that universe, you could spend 10 years in that alternate universe, come back, and it would be 10 years earlier. Jim, that blows my mind. Uh, so <laughs> leave it there for today. Have a good one. We'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review. Get us on those government surveillance devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please tune in on Friday, and it really will be Friday, on the Three Martini Lunch.